You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Sunday, January 28th, Sunday evening. And what better way to spend a Sunday than listening to a sermon, but... This is not a sermon I would choose to listen to on Sunday morning. This is a special episode, part eight in my Four Cross Point City Church series in reviewing the sermons in a specific series, the For Us series from Cross Point City Church. Let me pre-apologize because here it comes. (coughs) I am at the end of a cold or the beginning of the flu because... uh, my kids are sick, so you know I'm going to get it. So while we're stuck at home and can't do anything, why not continue this series? So let's get right to it. Today's sermon does not call, or does not come, I'm sorry, does not come from from James Griffin, just like the last one didn't, because he is still, at least at this time, he was still on vacation with his wife, trying to have a nice vacation with their kids at the beach before his new baby came. So this guy is Pastor Lane, and he's preaching about service, not status, determines greatness. So while James Griffin's away, instead of the backup preachers or associate pastors coming along and continuing to preach in the same uh, spiritual gifts series from Corinthians, they are instead preaching one-shot sermons on the core values of Cross Point City Church, but because they were included and because it's good to get a perspective from every preacher in a church who's going to come to the pulpit, I am including them in the series here. So let's go. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. I didn't even have to say good morning or anything. Well, listen, I am so excited to be here. My name is Lane Fruman. I have the honor of serving at the Cartersville campus as our campus pastor. Oh, he's a campus so pastor. I'm especially excited and honored to be able to celebrate with all of you. All campus pastors are hirelings, uh, by the way. Memorial Day and, and, and are remembering all through this weekend those people that paid the ultimate price and made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. And I just want to say... So this is a... This sermon's from June 1st, 2021, so it would have been pretty close to Memorial Day. You know that our hearts go out to you and our prayers are with you. And again, just honored to be able to be here with all of you today. Now, what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is we have been looking at two different convictions that are really important in the heart and the life of our church And these convictions are a natural outpouring of this For Us series. So in this series, we're recognizing that God uniquely gifts every single believer, but these gifts are not for ourselves. These gifts are to be poured out for the benefit of others. And so last week, Will did a great job looking at our conviction that suffering people are worth fighting for. And today we're going to explain that looks at uh, what it looks like to pour out ourselves and sacrifice service, service not status determines greatness so and remember the spiritual gifts are for the service to others so this is pretty on point for greatness. the series now he's saying think about think greatness about greatness in your mind and someone who you would view as great what are some of those 
descriptive words or adjectives that pop into your mind. Let me stop right here. If if he just wanted to preach a biblical text, and I realize this is a topical sermon about a core value of the, of, of their church, it's not a sermon from a specific text. But but when do you see in the scriptures, say that like the Apostle Paul saying, "All right, Corinthians, I want you guys to picture greatness. What do you think about it?" And we have to have the idea as Christians that. The world's idea of greatness is, is certainly uh, different from ours. So as Christians, when we picture greatness, we should picture someone who is a servant, who loves others, who considers the least of these. But if you just ask this question to a general audience, we're going to start thinking about Michael Jordan, uh, Nick Saban. You know, some people around here with their red hats are going to think about Donald Trump, you know, because he's, he's rich and he's the president. And, or he was, I guess he was the president. No, was he the president? He wasn't the president in 2021, was he? No. <sighs> Unfortunately, Joe Biden was the president. And, um, anyway, this is this sort of get people thinking, man, just pick up the Bible and talk to us about it. Is it someone who has authority or power or wealth, prestige? Like what is Donald it? Trump, honest. huge honest authority. About that as well. I'll tell you, for a very, very long time, my view and my model of greatness, it checked all of those boxes, right? It was going to be someone that had authority and power and financial freedom. Like, it was going to be a person that other people would use as a benchmark of success and say, hey, I want to be like that person. Like Mike. And as I was preparing I for this like teaching, Mike. I was wondering, man, how long like have Mike. I thought about this, uh, you know, this kind of model of greatness, and I traced it all the way back to my fifth grade year. What do so I care what you thought about grade, in fifth grade? The What's the Bible say? A small private Christian school in Marietta, Georgia, and at this school, <clears throat> we had a janitor by the name of Mr. Billy. Oh, Mr. Billy. Okay, and Mr. Billy was like the picture-perfect janitor. I mean, he was always pushing a trash can around that was on wheels or had a broom or a mop in his hand. And this guy, I'm telling you, he had so many keys like on his thing. It was like a small, it was like a small beach ball. So you could hear him coming from a mile away. But Mr. When I was a, when I was in elementary school at Harrison uh, Elementary, oh, I'm sorry, a small elementary school in Harrison, Tennessee. I won't give you the name of it. A we had a janitor, and his name was Clarence, and everybody loved him. Seriously, that was the name of the janitor when I was in elementary school, Clarence Perter. Everybody liked him. Like, I don't know why, just everybody did. Maybe because we didn't like messes, and he cleaned them up. I don't know. He was a nice guy. So maybe you can remember your childhood janitor, too. Who cares? Do you really need to give us this long personal example about the janitor from when you were in school? And like, well, he was just a janitor and he didn't make much, but he did a good job and he was great because he served others. Do you know what, what, whatever you said the guy's name was, if he won the lottery, he'd never show up to be the janitor again. Okay? Never. He'd be gone. If he got a billion dollar inheritance, not even a billion, if he got an inheritance of like $250,000, he'd probably quit being a janitor for four years, five years. <sighs> I'm glad that the guy was a great janitor. But he's just telling some story about some, some dude to, to compare and contrast. This is just silly.
Mr. Billy, he was Mr. Billy. so well-loved. Everybody loved him, respected him, would want to interact and talk with him. And I thought he was a really cool guy. But I remember even in fifth grade, wondering to myself, why, why would a guy like Mr. Billy waste his entire life? cleaning up after other people. And that's what I thought. I thought that he was Because it's the best job Mr. Billy could I'm get honest, with his level of education and skill. I thought Mr. Billy was skill. a loser. I really did. But there's one thing that I remember that still kind of captivates me about Mr. Billy to this day. Is he always had a smile on his face and he had a sense of joy and purpose about him that was infectious. Do you know you can like your job even if it's a menial, low-paying one? And God bless the people who do like their jobs. So fast forward for me, as I get older, I'm going out and I'm pursuing what I view as greatness, right? And as I'm achieving whatever measure of greatness, whether it's, um, you know, influence or, uh, you know, leadership and job or money, I realized that as soon as I got it, I wasn't truly satisfied, right? It, it, it did. By the way. In this guy's profession, he's not at a level of greatness. At Goat Church, at Coffee Church, at Rock and Roller Church, being the campus pastor means that you're below the visionary. James is the man. I want you to think about this. He is a campus pastor, which means he actually has to do the work of looking after the people and talking to the people while the man in his office in the background prepares his sermons and casts visions. Okay, that's, I don't know, I haven't seen this guy's job description, but it's pretty much what a campus pastor does is he deals with the people, what you might actually call the, the pastoring work, while the vision caster and the CEO mega senior pastor gets up there and gets all the accolades. Now, like I said, I don't know how much James looks after the people versus what this guy looks after the people. But as I said earlier, all campus pastors are inherent hirelings. They're just guys who are uh, yes-men and uh, goons, if you will. Goons, is a, that's, a terrible, uh, that's a terrible way to put it. I should find a better word. They're, they're like a go-between. They're, like a, they're like, a, like a butler, a footman. They're somebody who, there's a great man above them who's in charge, and they do his bidding, like little yes-men. Like, uh, like in the mafia, there'd be a boss, and they're like a little captain kicking up their share. So if, I, this is just my opinion. Uh, if you're a campus pastor, you have not achieved greatness. You are living in the shadow of someone else's perceived greatness in your industry. By the way, I don't think campus pastors are biblical. I'm just saying if that's the industry you're in, if that's the job you've chosen, that's what this guy has done. This is not a, a lesson or session on why campus pastors are unbiblical. We could do that in another time. This is supposed to be a sermon review. But like, this is a campus pastor talking about greatness, and I think that's ironic. It didn't fill the hole that I thought I would, and so it left me thinking, like, there has to be something more. You know, could it be that a guy like Mr. Billy had something figured out that I didn't? And the answer to that is absolutely. Yes, yes he did. I mean, he, he viewed greatness in the right way, and what I want to suggest... Is 
Did you, in your fifth grade self, sit down and have a conversation with Mr. Billy, who's, I don't know, 45 years old, about what greatness is? Because now you're saying Mr. Billy had it right. We, we, don't preach what you think Mr. Billy said. What's the Bible say? Is that our world views greatness in a completely wrong way. That greatness is actually not found in the way that the world would say. And I also want to suggest that there might be people because here the world in this room or different standard than the online, biblical one. And you might be experiencing a certain level of frustration or anger or resentment because you are pursuing in your life what you view as greatness. And so it's been my prayer. Here's the wide net, okay? Somebody out here is frustrated. Because you're pursuing greatness and you're not making it. It could be a teenager who's a senior and he realizes he's not going to college to play football or basketball. He's he's reached his end, even though he practiced hard. It could be uh, somebody, an adult, who's who's on the verge of divorce. He thought he had this great marriage, but he didn't. It could be an an adult who didn't get their promotion. When you cast the wide net, you're going to find somebody who's been trying hard and failing. And now you can make them feel better. But preaching about Christian greatness isn't supposed to be about felt needs. It's supposed to be going to the text and showing what Jesus said about greatness. When, it, like, for example, when James and John wanted to sit at his right hand, he says, "Not, no, that's not how it works." And I've I reviewed this sermon. I just listened to it a couple of weeks ago. He may touch on that, and I've perhaps forgotten it by now. But this is wide net. We're going to make somebody feel this. You've, you've been struggling. You're frustrated that you're not getting there. Well, what you, whatever you're looking for is not what you really should be shooting for, but you can give free labor to us. That in our time together that we would understand that greatness is found when we pour out ourselves sacrificially for the benefit of the world around us. And so today, here's what we're going to focus. This is the... For the benefit of the world around us or for the benefit of Christ's church? Because those are two very different things. The main point, and this is the conviction that we are going to discuss. Service, not status, determines greatness. Okay, service, not status, determines greatness. Now that, that's already sounding kind of foreign if we're thinking in a worldly sense, right? I mean, that kind of flips the idea of greatness and status on its head. We would Why would church people be thinking in a worldly sense unless it was a worldly church? And, and all of us, we, we appreciate some level of status. We like to have nice stuff. We like for people to respect us and, um, you know, like us and, and even want to be like us. And the problem with that is, is that ultimately what, what can happen is we start to get our value and our worth and our identity in the things that we have or what we do or how people view us. And uh, that takes us down a path of ruin and destruction. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look to Jesus. And we're going to look in the book of, of uh, Mark chapter 10. And we're going to see Jesus show us that greatness takes on the form of of a servant. So during our time... Let me, let me just say this. If you just walk up to the table, open it up, and preach Mark chapter 10, 
you can do all of this letting the scripture make your point. He's gone almost seven minutes, six minutes and 47 seconds, and he hasn't touched the Bible yet. If the Bible is the authority, you can just start with the Bible, and that's that. If you need seven minutes to make people think or tell a story about your own life before you get into the text, I don't think you're doing it right. Now, I, I mean, I think it's okay to start sermons with some kind of two-minute anecdote. A lot of preachers do that. Just, just that Sometimes that's good speaking, just to get people's attention, uh, kind of get the crowd warmed up, if you will, because you know, they were on their phone a second ago or they were singing a second ago and you want them focused on, on what you're saying. You know, to tell a story about, well, Abraham Lincoln thought greatness was this, but then he mentioned some servant guy. You know, it's sort of the same example we find of Mark. But seven minutes with no Bible. Time, I just want, to, want all of us to be super honest and to look deep in our hearts and our minds and our souls and truly unpack, okay, how am I viewing greatness and how am I pursuing that in my own life? So, okay, if you've got your Bibles or, or uh, devices, whatever you have, uh, turn to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to pick up in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Okay, so we're going to take just a step back from our... I'm going to take a step back. Why didn't he start at verse 17, <coughs> which is the story of the rich young ruler, who is this guy who would have been considered great by worldly standards, but he couldn't leave his property behind to follow Jesus. And the disciples say, you know, we, we've given everything to follow you. And th verse 31 says, many who are first will be last and the last first. I mean, this is what Jesus said in verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So why would you not start there? Because I think that's the part, the point that Mark was making in at least his order of storytelling. I just think that's an interesting choice. Our text, and we're gonna come also, if you didn't spend six minutes talking about Mr. Billy, you could have included more Bible. I paint a picture of what is going on. So all through the book of Mark, the disciples have been following Jesus, and now Jesus tells them where we're going. Hey, we're going to Jerusalem. And it would be in the city of Jerusalem that Jesus was going to be brutally handed over and crucified. And so as we're going through our text today, I want you to just remember all of these interactions that he has with his disciples is done in the shadow of the cross. Jesus has faced towards Jerusalem, and he is taking steps towards the city, knowing what his future held for him. Now, it's interesting, in the text, it says that the disciples were amazed and afraid. Like, those are two pretty powerful emotions, and they're pretty different. And so I've often wondered, like, what, what were the disciples thinking? 
right? Were they amazed and afraid that they didn't necessarily understand what the destination of Jerusalem was going to hold for them? Or were they amazed at the works of Jesus, but also afraid of potential opposition, which was obviously very likely? Or were they amazed and afraid at the fact that they knew that their lives and their their futures, their destinies were not in their hands at all. They were in the hands of Jesus. We'll never know. What we do know, though, is Jesus doesn't try and make them feel any better. He doesn't, you know, try and quell, like, their uncertainty. He tells them for the third time in Mark that he's going to be crucified. Right? That the Son of God is going to be handed over. And yet, this time, he uses far more detail than he ever has in the past. He says, hey, I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders who are then going to hand me over to the Gentiles and unbelieving people. And there I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be spat on. I'm going to be flogged. And then I'm ultimately going to be crucified. But it wouldn't end in death. After three days, Jesus would rise and defend sin, uh, defeat sin, death, and the enemy for all eternity. So even early on in our text, I want us to see a very, very important point is that there are no mistakes in God's master plan. Okay, there are no mistakes in God's master plan. So I agree with that there's no mistakes in God's master plan because God can't make mistakes ontologically. God's perfect. But that's really not a point from the text. It's just a truism. Jesus, the Son of God, the Father, knows and trusts that God has put every single step in front of him and that this plan and this pathway has, was going to be in place before the creation of our world. He <coughs> knew that his path and his life was perfectly laid out for him by God the Father. And this is not just true of Jesus, and it's not just true of the disciples as they're heading to Jerusalem. The same is true with every single one of us. God has knitted together before you were ever created every single step that we would take and every single breath that we'll take on this side of eternity. So here's what that means. There is no chance, right? There there is no luck. There are no mistakes. There is only the perfect plan of our sovereign God. This is an important piece because I know some of us. Very true, but he needs to provide some scripture references for that. Maybe Ephesians 2, just off the top of my head. Because remember, this is a church who their mission statement is to relentlessly pursue people who are far from God. So you have to assume there's a lot of non-Christians in the, in the audience, and they may, they may be, I don't know, they may be non-elect, and God's perfect plan for their life may be predestination to hell. So be careful about that in the fine print. Might have had a plan for our lives all shorted out. We, we know how everything's going to look. We got a great plan. And somewhere along the way, your plan got totally thrown off course. And so maybe you're depressed or maybe you're sad or maybe you're angry wondering, God, where are you? Like, how could you have let this happen to me? And I just want to remind you today that you are securely 
and eternally in God's hands. There is nothing that is going on in your world and in your life that is surprising God. Nothing at all. Super true, but not exegeted from this text. He's not teaching us what the Bible means. He's teaching us this truism. He's appealing to people who may be worried and saying, don't be worried, which is good and pastoral, but shouldn't you preach that out of out of Romans when it says all things work together for the good of those who love God instead of this passage here, which, I mean, it has James and John in 35 trying to sit on the left and the right, trying to aspire to greatness, and Jesus is saying, no, no, it's the servant you, you got to be. You got to serve. Going down to uh, verse forty-two, but he's just sort of going off on this tangent, which is a wrong. It's just not the text. See, the thing about God is he's got this cosmic, eternal perspective. It's a perspective we do not have. Right? We have a finite you know, a visibility and lens through which we can view through. God is seeing all things weave perfectly together to fit, to be a part of his plan. <clears throat> but it's also important to, to say and to recognize that some people's lives have been absolutely devastated by the injustice of sin. Okay, maybe that was a death of a family member. Maybe it was a disease or a diagnosis. The injustice of sin. And the first example he gives is the death of a family member. And then he, he, he I cut him off, so maybe it's a disease. Because, you know, maybe he meant to say the unfairness of sin, because why is it fair that person A gets cancer and person B doesn't? Or why is it fair that person A's mom dies when he's five and person B's mom dies when he's you're 60, and he's enjoyed a good long life with her. But if you go to the scripture where man sins, where Adam and Eve sin against God and eat the forbidden fruit, and their punishment is death, that's not the injustice of sin, that's justice. We failed, we're sinners. It's not, it's not, it's not an injustice of sin when the effects of sin in our world negatively affect us. Now, there's injustice in the world where people do things bad and get away with it. That's out there, but... Does, wow, how do you mess that up with not knowing what the injustice or the difference between the injustice or unfairness of sin? And, and I just want to tell you that God did not want that for you. That was not God's desire, and it grieves the heart of God, and he truly cares about how you feel. What we have to understand is the reality of living in a broken world. And so sometimes, sometimes what that means is we just have to white-knuckle grip on the hope that we find in Romans 8.28. That there God is. is using all things. All things, not just the good stuff, not just the stuff that worked out according to your plan. No, no, the most broken, painful things about your life that you might have gone through or are currently going through, and it is going to be for God's glory and for your good. 
Yeah, but you're not white knuckled gripped because you know God's in control. It's you're going through the bad things, but it's not like you know white knuckle. Maybe that's being too picky. That's amazing. It's so easy to to miss that, but God's plan, man, it's perfect and it can be trusted. Look, look at Jesus. This is the Son of God, and his and his path and his life. It wasn't full of lavishness and Cadillacs and fine dining. No, no, no. The path of Jesus was painful and it was hard and it was costly, but Jesus knew that it was perfect in the Father's eyes, and He knew that His plan is the best plan. The same goes for us. So we have to remember and grip to that truth. And so so now that we kind of have the backdrop of this interaction that we're about to read, um, we're going to pick back up in our text uh, in verse 35. And it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want for you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And I love, every time I read that, it's like, that's pretty bold. It's like, we just want whatever we want. Is that okay? But that's exactly what they ask him. So, um, so he said to them, he says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, well, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Okay, so Jesus makes this really powerful proclamation that he is going to be crucified in the city of Jerusalem and right on the heels of it, completely discounting what Jesus is saying. James and John are like, they're looking for some position, right? They're looking for a little bit of power. They want to have a special place amongst Jesus. See, they're, they're, the light of, of their selfishness is shining through the darkness of Jesus's reality. What's incredible is that Jesus promised all 12 of his disciples in Matthew chapter... The light of their selfishness is shining through... The darkness of Jesus's reality? What? Why Why is Jesus's reality darkness? I mean, I get what he... <laughs> oh, I think he, maybe he said that backwards. 19 verse 28, he says, Each one of you is going to have a throne in the kingdom of God. But listen, James and John, they wanted more. They wanted more access. They wanted more power. They wanted more authority, right? They had no idea how Jesus was going to bring glory to himself. And I think a lot of times we read this interaction and read about James and John and we're like, I I cannot believe that they said this. Like these guys are idiots. And and it's true. Like like we're we're reading this through the entire lens of the New Testament. And we know that Jesus isn't going to be a militant you know, a political person that's going to throw around his power. No, no, no. He's going to be a humble, kind, loving servant. And so reading these interactions, it's like maddening. How could they not know? But we don't get to get off that easy. I think if we're honest, we're a lot more like James and John than we want to admit. I think in a lot of ways, as we look at James and John, it's like, hold 
Whoa, 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 whoa. Do we want to eisegete ourselves into the text? Are we supposed to stand in for James and John here? I mean, I don't... James and John are James and John, and we're le- we're learning the lesson from them. So let's not go this whole. We're, we're a lot more than than them than we'd like to admit. Holding a mirror up to ourselves, looking at our own reflections, and something that I want us to see is that our view of greatness gives us a glimpse of our heart. Here's the truth. And I say this out of love. It might not sit well with some of you, but we are all very selfish people. Well, is that new news to anybody? I don't, some of you might be shocked, but it's, it's the truth, okay? We are inwardly bent. We have sensitive, fragile little egos that, you know, if somebody else kind of rubs us the wrong way, we get very upset. We as people, sometimes we like to see people fail because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We too are... That's called Schoen, is it Schoenfrude? Schoen, I'm tapping it into the Google machine, Schoenfrude. Schoenfrude, pleasure derived by someone from another, sorry, ah, pleasure derived by someone from another person's misfortune. Yeah, pleasure, I don't know why I couldn't read. Pleasure derived by someone from another person's Misfortune. Schadenfreude. I can mispronounce it ten different ways, but Schadenfreude. That's what he's talking about, and that is remarkably unchristian. I hope that the people in any audience, especially a church congregation, really don't feel that way. Are jockeying and leverage our way for position and influence. And I know some people might say, well, I'm not, I'm not like, I know some people are egotistical. I'm really not. I'm like a humble person. Uh, you are at some level still selfish and broken. It's the reality of, of our pride in a broken and sinful world. And so here's what goes on to varying degrees with every single one of us is that the way we view greatness and our own greatness can cause us to build up walls of entitlement an expectation from other people, right? It's, it's one of the reasons we get so upset when people waste our time or don't. This is, this is life coaching. Now he's into life coaching about, well, this is how we tend to be. And this is what happens in our lives when we act egotistical. Blah, 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 blah. Is he going to explain the cup and the baptism that they... That is he going to explain that you do not know what you're asking? You're able to drink my cup or be baptism of the baptized of the baptism which I'm baptized. Well, what is that? Is he going to explain it, or is he going to talk about life coaching and how we can have showing fruta, and you know how we can build up walls? And he's away from the text here. It's you're interested. You're hearing what he says. It's relatable to you if you're listening, but he's away from the text respect our schedule right it's like inside of us we're burning saying do you not understand what my time is worth like do do you know who i am don't you know that the stuff i do is important and and i know i'm autistic if ah yes ah people i'll tell you this this is 
I just have to say this. People will ask me at work. They'll say, do you want to meet Monday or can you meet with me about this Tuesday? And I'll just say, put it on my Outlook calendar. Why are you? I mean, and in my mind, I'm like, why are you asking me this? My Outlook calendar says when I can meet with you, when anybody. And now you're taking time to ask me this. Just look at my calendar. And I have to step back and think this is how neurotypical people be polite by asking you this. But... Oh, it burns me up when people are late and people move the schedule. But you know what? Even as much as that burns me up and I would be in the audience, but man, it burns me up when they do that. I mean, James and John are not talking about not keeping schedules. I know that might sound like that's kind of far out there and a little bit of a stretch, but stop and think about it. I mean, why do we get so upset when we drive? And, and somebody else is inconveniencing us, right? Somebody's in the left-hand lane, and they clearly should be in the right-hand lane. I mean, right? But uh, underneath all of that... You is listeners like, of the Christian commute know that I down. experienced this. Yeah, I, I've got stuff to do. I've got important stuff, right? So we're so angry and upset. The same thing is telling when we're at a restaurant. And God help us if someone, you know messes up our order or takes a long time, right? It's like we can't understand people's incompetence when it comes to inconveniencing you. You know, it's like, I just, I don't know. I don't know why people like this. It's the same way we gossip behind. Now, listen, we should not be rude to anybody, especially waitresses and waiters at restaurants. But if I'm going to Longhorn, and I'm going to get a New York strip, and it's $24.99. And I could have bought a New York strip for $10 at Ingalls and cooked it myself. Do you understand that I'm paying twice? And by the way, the Coke's $3. I'm paying all, maybe more than double of what this meal would have cost me so I can go have a relaxing meal and be served by others, maybe enjoy the company of the people with you. Perhaps my, you know, Maybe I'm with my wife. Maybe I'm with my friend. Like, I'm paying a premium of... A hundred percent, a hundred percent premium plus tip for this experience. So yes, I do expect some kind of decent service because that's what I'm paying for. I'm not mad because someone's inconvenienced my time. I'm mad because I'm hungry and I want my food and you didn't do it right and I'm paying you a lot of money for it. But again, casting the wide net. And we hold others to the expectation ultimately to be like us. I don't think I'm great no, I when I go to Longhorn. Not, Everybody can go I'm there. Not from this either. My own brokenness was made. Uh, it, it was put in the forefront um, about a month ago uh, when my wife gave birth to our first son, Elias. A personal family. story. Everybody congratulate me. I had a son. I have to work in yes. a sermon. Something about me. Yay yeah, for that, me, uh, my son. That's, that's a game changer. Congratulations, Pastor sure. so uh, Lane. So we gave birth, my, my wife obviously gave birth, uh, at, at Northside Atlanta. And um, so we were there for several days. And the day comes when you're discharged. And you're like, oh, that's good. Sweet. We get to go home. Because we didn't truly realize what going home meant, which was. We were in the Bible. Jesus has said he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles and crucified. The sons of Zebedee have said, we want to sit on your right hand and your left hand when you come into your glory. Which, by the way, talk about faithful. They just heard the bad things that are going to happen to Jesus, and they just 
basically just like brush it off and say, well, when you come into your glory, we want to be in charge. And then he makes this statement about, oh, well, you are going to drink, but it's not for mine to give this, for this right or left. And all of a sudden, now we're in Pastor, now we're with Pastor Lane in Northside Hospital talking about the birth of his son. Do you see how far he got away from the Bible? And now he's just telling stories and anecdotes and life coaching. Also terrifying. So it's like, can we just stay here for longer? But anyway, so to be discharged, uh, I was just thinking, you know, you thank everybody for what they, their service and you head out. Well, that's not the case. There's like a process. You have to talk to people and you got to do certain stuff. Well, part of that process is that you have to go get the car seat and you got to bring it back into the hospital to put your newborn in it. So I go to the parking deck and I bring up the car seat and um, my wife is putting Elias in it. And obviously a three-day-old doesn't like the shoulder straps that you're tucking in and you know, you kind of got to leverage them down. So, so uh, my son is freaking out and I'm freaking out just because I, I've been freaking out for several days at this point. I have no idea, you know. Just hire John Chris like. to come in and but tell jokes. I'm a screaming child. And so in that moment, my expectation was, hey, Lane needs to go. And so whoever needs to be in this room needs to be here. Let's talk. And then I'm going to go. Like, that That was my expectation. Um, <clears throat> my expectations were not met. Right, like it, the, the world didn't come to a stop for every doctor, nurse, tech, whatever, so that they could come and make sure that Lane, you know, could go. Uh, it didn't work out that way. Um, the reality is that there were other people on that floor that needed help, that needed to be cared for, that needed to be served. But because I viewed myself through the lens of being greater than other people and their needs and their requirements, I, I was incredibly angry. Could it be? That instead of viewing yourself as great, you were overwhelmed by your stress and inadequacy, which anyone who's had a baby for the first time and tried to get the baby in the car seat and get out of the hospital and dr- drive home at five miles an hour is the tiredest you've ever been in your life have experienced. Could it be that you were so stressed that you wanted attention? And could it be, campus pastor lane, could it be that you needed to make your personal story fit into your speech about greatness, so you just did make it fit. Could it be? And here's the problem with this. Um, over time, what happens is that anybody in our lives that can be more draining or difficult or really anybody across the board we can all just start to view people as a barrier of our success, right? All they are is speed bumps on our journey to greatness. And so what happens is our hearts grow cold and they're cynical and they're annoyed and they're incredibly angry. Are Peter and Bartholomew speed bumps on the road to success for James and John? this This is the reality that some of us live in, that all of us live in to a certain extent, but we have to understand that God's called us to a completely different way and, and, and as the Christian ethic to love other people, right? To not treat them merely as an inconvenience. And so I think as we do an honest assessment of our view of greatness, we can see things. Now would be a great time to go to, was it Ephesians 5? Is that where the fruits of the Spirit are? 
let's just say, fruits of the Spirit. Oh, Galatians 5. Galatians 5. Oh, if I would have went to seminary before Google, I would have known it was Galatians 5. But now I'm like, I don't know. I don't have to know where it is in the Bible. I'm just going to Google it. Scripture is so much more powerful than this guy's life stories and life coaching. And by the way, that of anybody. Uh, verse 16, let's see, Galatians 5, uh, we'll start with 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now you see those things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things are, are ways to love others. You love others, you, you have joy in your life, you have peace. Peace with who? Peace with God, peace with other, peace with your neighbor. Patience. Patience with whom? Patience with your neighbor. Kindness. Who are you kind to? Your neighbor. Goodness. Who are you good to? Your neighbor. You have faithfulness in God. Who are you gentle with? And gentleness. Gentle against your neighbor. You have self-control. So when your neighbor is annoying and makes you mad, you don't yell at him and freak out and flip out. Now, when you look at the deeds of the flesh, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Anger, disputes, those are when you're treating people like speed bumps or like tools, sensuality. This woman I want to have sex with, I'm not going to make her my wife and I'm not going to die to self and love her as Christ loved the church. I'm just going to have sex with her as much as I can until I move on to the next person. Or maybe two at once, who knows? Three at once. And I can just go on and on and on. I can cheat on them whatsoever. I, I'm, not going to, I'm going to have outbursts of anger with people at work or on the sports field or on the court or wherever. And everybody else is just in my way, somebody for me to beat. Dissensions. I'm going to cause dissensions and factions within groups. I'm going to envy for what other people have. When I cause these dissensions and factions, I'm going to climb over them to get the things that I envy. Do you see how if he could have just went to the Scripture and told people that, it would have been a great point. Instead, he gives these, these stories from his life. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, you knew that, Seth. Yeah, I did. I did know that. I've been going to quote-unquote big church, which is the sermon since I was six. I have a master's of divinity. I can go to the Bible because I've been educated in this stuff from the time I was a little baby. Everybody in this audience doesn't know to jump through the Bible like that. It's the preacher's job to do that for them. And he's not giving them the biblical foundations of what he's saying. He's just reading the Bible in general 
and we have the general point about service, and then telling a bunch of life coaching and a bunch of personal stories. He's not delivering these people the scripture. It's like it's like groundskeeper Willie's watered down orange drink for you classic Simpsons fans. Things in our own hearts that need to be surrendered to God, and we find ourselves looking not so different from James and John. So James and John, they make this request of, of Jesus, and Jesus would obviously have every single right to lay into them and be like, Do you, you guys totally don't get it, um, but he doesn't. He asks them two different questions. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And of course, they're like, yeah, we'll do baptisms and we'll drink cups and it's all no problem. They had no idea what Jesus was talking about. So the language that Jesus is using is very similar to two <coughs> sacraments that we still practice today in our church, and that's communion and baptism. Whoa, hold the phone, stop the train. Communion and baptism are sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, but they are ordinances in Protestant churches. Right, so the idea of sharing in a cup with someone is to share in someone's fate and to share in someone's destiny, but also all through scripture, we see that the cup is associated with the wrath of God. And we see this later on in the book of Mark where uh, Jesus is about to go to the cross, but he cries out to God in the garden of Gethsemane. He's finally explaining this, but how long did it take him to explain it after talking about himself for 10 minutes? And he is absolutely terrified of what his future holds. And here's what he says. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. God, please don't make me do this. God, please don't pour out your wrath on me. But it doesn't end there. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. In spite of Jesus knowing his future, he trusted God. And he loved God, and he loved us enough to go to the cross. Jesus also talks about this baptism. To be baptized is to be fully submerged and immersed in the destiny and the fate of Jesus. And so you can tell by how quickly James and John are saying, yeah, 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 no problem. They, they didn't get it, but they would get it. That's what Jesus says. Oh, no, you, you, you will drink of this cup. You will be baptized how I was baptized. See, James would become the first apostle to be martyred. He would be killed by the sword of King Herod. John would be the only apostle, the only disciple who was not killed, but he would go through uh, an immense amount of persecution and then was exiled to the island of Patmos where he would write the book of Revelation. You see, James and John didn't understand what greatness looked like here, but they would. And they would understand that greatness in the kingdom of God is incredibly costly and involves sacrifice and service even to the point of death. So we're going to pick up back in our text and we're going to see how the other disciples respond to James and John's request, uh, starting in verse 40. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, do you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them 
and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the other 10 disciples, they hear the request of James and John and they're furious. They are so ticked off, but they're not ticked off because, oh, James and John, they don't understand um, the, the, the type of servant that Jesus is, right? They have the wrong expectations. No, no, no. They're upset because the rest of the disciples, they didn't ask first, right? They too wanted these positions of power and prestige. That's not what the text says. That's not what the text says. The text does not say they were upset because they didn't ask first. Perhaps they were upset because they didn't think that James and John should be over them. That they're equals. Maybe that's why they were upset. That James and John were trying to level jump. And Lord and exercise authority over them. Don't tell us what the text doesn't say with your LED spotlight on the ground next to your drum set, which is what I'm looking at right now and is is electric blue backdrop. Special access. So now you've got a bunch of grown men arguing amongst themselves about great. Sorry, I had to pause for a second. Let's go on. And again, Jesus could lay into them, but he doesn't. Rather, he gives them a picture of what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. And he clearly shows that greatness is found in servitude. Greatness is found in servitude. So again, what Jesus is doing is he's flipping this idea of greatness on his head. And he's like, hey, you're not going to be like the worldly leaders who lord their power and authority over people. It's not going to be so among you. So what does it look like then? Well, it says that whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. So to be great in the kingdom of God means that you are to be a servant and a slave. And this language of servant means to be a table waiter, and a slave obviously means to belong to someone else. And how true of it is it, of that is it of all of us who follow who follow Christ? We are not our own. We belong to God. But we struggle to get this right. Like it, it's hard for us to surrender our greatness and bring ourselves to love and serve sacrificially to the world around us. And that's one of the reasons why this vision and this dream and this move initiative was birthed in the life of our church. Okay, so about a, a year and a half ago, uh, Pastor James, our lead pastor, was just really challenged and burdened by the fact of, you know, what would it look like for our entire church community to leave the table and to get on the floor, right? To leave the table of entitlement, to leave the table of... The vision caster's vision comes to light to be executed by the campus pastor like a CO and an XO in the army. And by that I mean commanding officer and executive officer, like Picard and uh, Commander Riker, even though they're not real people, but I bet you guys know who they are. Greatness and preference and comfort and get on the floor and serve other people the way that Christ served us. 
And the foundational text for this initiative is found in John chapter 13, where before Jesus goes to the cross, he gets on his hands and knees and he washes the feet of his disciples. Right? He takes on the form of the lowliest servant and the lowliest slave. And that is where he gives us a picture of greatness. And he doesn't serve to be seen or recognized. He serves out of his love for God and his love for other people. This is another tension we feel, I think, when we serve in our world. A lot of times, like, we at least think, well, hey, if you're going to serve, at least get good documentation of it, right? Like, get a good picture, put it on social media and say, what can I say? You know, I'm a, I'm a servant. I love people, and, and this is just kind of who I am. That's, that, that's kind of, you know, the view that we have. That's a lot like James and John. You see, James and John don't understand that the way that Jesus is going to elevate himself is going to be on a cross. And Jesus isn't surrounded by crown princes at his left and his right hands. No, he is, crim he is crucified with criminals at his right and his left hand. They didn't understand the idea of greatness, but Jesus knew just... I'm going to take a pause to remind you guys of the various ministries, the cross point you can serve in. Bookstore, coffee bar, compassion center, elementary kids ministry, guest experience team, which includes hosts, parking, greeters, and first-time guests, group leader, high school students, kids ministry greeting team and check-in team, medical response team, middle school students, next steps, next steps area, next steps class, meal team, baptism host, online prayer team, photography, preschool kids ministry, production, security Special Needs Kids Ministry and Worship. So some of those are ways that Jesus served us and some of them are not. To serve is to serve out of love and to serve in obscurity. So if that's the case, then no wonder a guy like Serve Mr. in obscurity be on, his on the photography team taking pictures for or 40 years of because he Pastor James while he makes $180,000 a year. And you give for his salary and also park the cars. And that was the only thing that mattered. They're clapping for Mr. Billy in case you missed it. It's a challenging way to view greatness, but it's one that every single one of us is called to. And that's why within this MOVE initiative, we called for 100% participation. Right? And it looked differently to serve sacrificially with different people, but categorically, you know, you have time, talent, and resources. And so uh, I, if you have not been a part of this initiative, I would like to invite you in to be a part of what God is doing at this community. And again, it looks different for different people in different seasons. Some of you that might be stepping up and leading a group. Some of you might uh, you know, need to look at and explore ways that we serve our community. Some of you can jump onto one of our many serve teams. Some of you might need to give more sacrificially and use your influence or your business to help share the hope of the gospel. Use your influence or your business to help share the hope of the gospel. Remember just two podcasts ago, not in this series, but in my regular podcast talking about how these churches thrive is they use their whales. And if you want to stop these rock and roll coffee churches at the gate of your town, spear their whales. And I just want to say, if that's you, and, and you're interested in taking that next step, check out our website, crosspointcity.church slash 
serve, or you can stop at the table out in the lobby today and someone will help you sign up. But I wanna say this because it matters. I am not preaching this message as some sort of a bait and switch to get you to sign up for a serve team. Yes, you are. That's why you had to say that you weren't. Lane, the entire For Us sermon series is predicated on the idea of trying to get people to sign up and serve. So don't say that you're not because you are going all the way back to the first sermon in this series. If you had to say it, it's because you knew somebody was thinking it and because they were thinking it. You know why they were thinking it? Because it was true. I'm not interested in guilting you, and Jesus is certainly not interested in that. It matters why we serve. It matters the position and the posture of our heart. And that's what we're really going to see in this final verse. This is the culmination of everything that we've been reading today. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to, uh, to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom. The piano guy sitting down behind him. You see, we knew Jesus was going to Jerusalem. We know where he's going. Well, now we know why. Here it is. You see, Jesus doesn't go to you the, hear the piano cord in the back. There's eight minutes a left. Example of what it means to be a servant. No, no. Jesus went to the cross to pay a ransom. And there's two, what I believe, very important theological points that I want to touch on. Number one, this ransom was not paid to Satan. The only thing that Satan received from the cross was death and destruction, and every bit of his power would be eternally taken away from him. Okay, this ransom, it means to to pay a debt to release a slave. And this ransom was paid to God on our behalf who have been in the bondage of slavery of sin since Genesis chapter 3, since the fall of Adam and Eve. See, this ransom, a lot of times in Scripture, it's called substitutionary atonement. Atonement is to reap. Hey, by the way, good for this guy for talking about the biblical theory of atonement, substitutionary atonement, and contrasting it with uh, the heretical view of ransom theory. I mean, I'm, I don't think the audience members know this. Some of them might, but just good for him for doing that because I think all of them will have been exposed to the, the wrong idea. So just good for him, even though he's doing it over the keys do, 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 to manipulate, you know. G- good, good for him. Pay someone for a wrongdoing. This atonement and this ransom was paid to God. Listen to this. This is important. God had to punish sin. He had to. God had to pour out his wrath on sin. It would be unloving if he didn't. If he just swept it under the rug and said, well, hey, I love you anyway, it would be unloving. And here's why. God knows the destruction that sin brings into our world, into our lives. And so out of his love, he's got to deal with it and he's got to pour out his wrath on it. So it is the perfect love of God that requires a ransom to be paid. But also he provided the only means 
through which it could have been fully satisfied. That's in and through Jesus. The wrath of God is a testament to his love and nothing else. Number two, Jesus chose to lay down his life. It said in our text that he came to give his life. No one took it away from him. Okay, listen, John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus went to the cross, not because he had to, but he went to the cross to pay a penalty that we couldn't on our own so that we might experience the hope of salvation. I think sometimes when we talk about the cross, we're tempted to say that Jesus... I'm appreciative of the presentation of the gospel, but he read verse 41 through 45, which is supposed to be the main point of his sermon, and then didn't really exposit on it a lot at all. He just sort of ended the sermon and went to this lengthy presentation of the gospel with the, with the keys. Jesus was murdered, right? And I get it, because it kind of communicates a point that there was a, a violent brutal death, but it also suggests that there was something outside of Jesus's control, and there was never anything that was done to Jesus that he did not fully know and surrender and willingly submit to. And so here we are at the end of a sermon, and we've got a choice to make. Right? Jesus is putting in front of us a fork in the road, and we've got one, one path and it leads to personal greatness. And hear me, it might not look so bad. It's not like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to be the president or I'm trying to be a king. You know, the path to personal greatness, sometimes it just looks like, hey, I just wanna, I just wanna keep my comfort. You know, I wanna keep people out of my schedule and out of my... It's okay to aspire to great things. There's not a, con there shouldn't be a contrast here bubble and I don't want to be inconvenienced. I just want to do me. And then there's another path. It's the path that Jesus calls us down. But this path, it leads to Jerusalem and it leads to a cross. And Jesus invites us to lay down our lives so that we might serve and sacrifice for the people in the world around us. Just a reminder with the piano keys, if you want to know how you can lay down your life to serve and sacrifice for the people around you, either at the Adairsville, Cartersville, or Rome campus, you can do production, photography, online, and guest experience team, and, and coffee bar, and bookstore. Pick up your cross and come to the bookstore. Now, I want to tell you why this is the most beautiful invitation that any one of us will ever receive. Remember, <coughs> Jesus didn't go on the cross just to set a good example. Jesus went to the cross to defeat sin. Oh, good job, Pastor Lane. Now he's refuting uh, Christus Exemplar, another false idea of, or false or unbiblical idea of the atonement. So good for him. Death hell and the enemy forever and so really when jesus invites us to the cross 
When he invites us to the cross, he's just not inviting us in to death. He's inviting us into true life. And he's saying, look, this is a life that's actually worth living. This is a life that I've designed for you before you were ever came into this world. And so could it be that to die is to gain? Could it be that when we lay down our personal greatness and our comfort and, and our schedules and we say, Jesus, you take it all, that there is a life that you experience supernatural purpose and fulfillment and peace and passion and zeal for life. It's that life that Jesus calls us to. So then the question becomes, what are we gonna choose? Which path are we gonna take? So again, for, he was pretty for us, like calm, Some of you like not not a lot of pressing for the whole sermon. You, need to be and you could tell that was sort of his personality of you might have until it got to piano time. And then he, whoa, whoa, are we going to do this? And when is it this thing that happened? And when are you going to do it? And you got two choices one way or the other. But he was the whole time before he's like, man, remember when I was... I had my baby, and you remember when I was with Mr. Billy? I'm going to tell you, this might seem kind of hard, but, you know, he was he was like Mr. Cool Guy, and now he's like, God, you now you got to go to do it. The piano's playing. People around us, and as that happens, as we commit our lives to God's glory, his greatness, it's there we will experience our true purpose, and it's where it's there that we help grow and invest and expand the kingdom of God all around us. That's what God invites us into. So right now, we're going to close with a time of prayer. We're going to ask for his help. God, today, we just thank you for loving us enough that you would pay a debt that we could never pay on our own. No matter how much we worked, no matter how many healthy habits and how we picked ourselves up and here comes the stage hand he takes the table away God, the stage hand apparently does not need to pray eyes open he takes he takes the the table and the bible away why can't the stage hand wait till the prayer and sermon is over and worship service is over to come get the table. Why does he have to do it during the prayer? Because it's a production. And that's when the, the uh, stage notes say to do it. Stage direction, that's what they call that. So I pray that today as we leave, we would leave a changed people, that you would give us opportunities to serve, that you would help us put our finger on areas that we are elevating, that we are loving above you or loving above other people. And God, I just pray, whatever you have to do, would you take it? Would you help us surrender? Help us realize that you're the only one worth living for. God, we want to desire you deeper and love you in a deeper way, and we need your help for that. God, we're fully reliant on you. We love you. We ask that you help us be who you were to us. Use us in amazing ways. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right, that's that. So I'm going to go get upstairs and get this uploaded. <coughs> Thanks for bearing through another Cross Point City Thank Church. You, oh, no. Oh, no, it auto did. No.
uh, YouTube was on autoplay. Uh, thanks for bearing through that with me. Overall, I mean, not a bad message. That means not a bad message from Mark. It's true that service, not status, determines greatness. But this is the type of sermon when you're going to go to a place like this. You're going to go get life coaching. You're going to get a lot of stories that are outside the Scripture instead of just focusing on the Scripture. And, and then you're going to get 10 minutes of piano. So uh, what is this? What did I say? Part 8. On to part nine, uh, Lord willing, whenever that may be. God bless you guys, and thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Oh, how embarrassing. It's taken me a while to turn my phone off. It was locked. Now, God bless you Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.